Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello everybody, welcome to GradCast. It's been a while. I am your host, Tristan Johnson, today, and I am co-hosted by Alex Mazinski. You're back. Yes, I am. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. You've been gone for almost a month. Yeah, it's been a busy month. Comps will do that to you. Comps will do that to you. And today, I am very excited to say that our guest comes from archaeology. You look excited. I know. This, um, she's basically doing what my dissertation would have been in like an alternate universe if I had been a bit more um, bold in my decisions when I was a bit younger. Now she looks excited. Yes, I am. <laughs> now we need to introduce her. So our guest today is Diana Moredas. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Diana. And you are... Uh, are you a PhD student? Yes, PhD candidate now. Excellent, excellent. And uh, just tell us a little bit about what, what, what's your thing? What's your, what's your topic? So I'm uh, doing a stable isotope analysis of uh, human remains, um, of which were composed of uh, adults and children who were sacrificed by the Aztecs during the late post-classic period in uh, central Mexico. All right, so we have a lot to break down there, but... Um, that it's, it's, it's an amazing topic. Uh, so uh, first, the post-classical period. Uh, I'd like, it's, let's talk about what, what as far as Mexican uh, archaeological timeline goes. Uh, sure. So the late post-classic period is a time when the, the main uh, ethnic group, uh, the Aztecs, were in Tenochtitlan in, in central Mexico, which what is now uh, Mexico City. And they built their own, a lot of people call it empire, but they, they created their own amazing society. They built kennels. They had a huge agricultural uh, success in terms of like the landscape, how they used the landscape, how they used the lakes in that area. And they started to control parts of uh, Mesoamerica or what, what what's now Mexico and part of Guatemala and, and have a... A tributary system where they actually uh, had provinces they controlled through warfare and and tribute. Uh, so basically, people had to pay them taxes and pay them with and also in kind. And and so they built this amazing empire. And one of the the main things that they created as well or they built was their religious practices. And that's where you know human sacrifice comes into the picture. Yeah. So late classical would be the period right up until European contact. Exactly. So they were the ones who actually met with the conquistadores um, mm -hmm. at that time. Yes. Uh, if you guys might remember, uh, for those who like the Aztecs are, are the famous story of uh, the conquest of, of Mexico City by Hernando Cortes and uh, such like King Montezuma II and everything like that. So yes. sorry, I got we're asking you the questions. <laughs> no, I'm glad you're excited about this. Mm -hmm. it's, it's my dream project, actually. It's it's such a just so great to to be able to work with the, these materials and and mm -hmm. piece a little bit more about what the the Aztec life was like and and how their society was at that time. Yes, and and one thing to say is it was rather bloody. <laughs> yes, so a lot of people talk about, you know, how human sacrifice can be bloody and in and gory and 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 yes, in in a way we look at that in in that way as 
people who are in the contemporary world and, and we're in, living in a way different kind of period, right? And in, in, in time, uh, back then it was it was conceptualized completely different. So I think that's how, as an anthropologist, you have to really look carefully and be open about uh, the kind of research you're doing and, and be open to to look at it in different ways, different in a different perspective. Yes, because. Um the Aztecs or, or or Nahua people or Mexicas, there's a lot of different names. I mean different things, but um, a lot of the more difficult things to study about them is, yes, their their religious world was very much based on human sacrifice. That was the one thing that was a very big deal, um, yes. especially in the late classic period, especially the Tenochtitlanos. Exactly. Um, so could you tell us why? Uh, I think it comes, comes from, like human sacrifice was actually like a really old tradition in Mesoamerica, like from the before, pre- before uh, yeah, before present uh, period. And in the pre-classic, classic, all throughout the Mesoamerican periods, the cultures that came before the Aztecs also uh, were, you know, practice human sacrifice in certain ways and but it's harder to tell how much of it was important to them because we don't have a lot of historical records that tell us about it so archaeologists try to piece together from the material record uh, artifacts and 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 obviously the osteological record like how humans were you know died and and then looking at their bones and, and realizing oh this person was killed in some kind of ritual and and in that sense, we know that that tradition existed way before the Aztecs, but the Aztecs really embraced it. And they really took upon a cosmovision, which is based on cosmology and based on uh, the previous, their ancestors, which were the or predecessors, predecessors the, um, the Toltecas, the Toltecs, and, and they try to expand that vision through myths. And through myths, they, they had this idea that to create the world, the gods had to sacrifice themselves. So the Aztecs had to sacrifice, as well, humans so that the world could keep going. And, and it's this cyclical uh, concept that allowed them to just expand on it as that they became a, a really large empire and as they were... Um, constrained by environmental factors, they, they were trying to appease the gods as well to continue to, to live, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how did they go about these sacrifices? And, and like, would it be a lot of people that needed to be sacrificed or like one at a time or like how, what was it like? So it was a very complex affair because it was not just um, one of those things where they would say, okay, we need to sacrifice 100 people, let's go for it. And, and then just you know, and then just choose people at random, and then and then sacrifice them all to, at the same time. Uh, it was actually very complicated because they had monthly in their calendar. They had monthly festivals, and each festival was a f- was a celebration and commemorating a god or a kind of uh, activity, and and based on that god, they were you know, having this feast for or, or celebrating, they would choose the individual that met the characteristics to be sacrificed for a specific purpose. So in some months, it would be women, actually, like a woman who was had certain traits and was sacrificed for a specific purpose. 
uh, in other cases, it would have been a young warrior who was prepped for, to impersonate the god before he was sacrificed. And, and that's a different kind of sacrifice. So now we get into very complex you know, ground in terms of there's different kinds of sacrifices that they, they actually developed and, and they, they were engaging in. And so just hold on for a yes. second there. To avoid being sacrificed, you had to be as ungodlike as possible then. <laughs> it wasn't exactly it wasn't necessarily it was, a bad thing not, it was not exactly that was not was you're a, right it was, it was not a bad thing it was more of an honor okay. uh, because it were everyone in that society was embracing the religious uh, cosmovision and and the kind of rituals they were involved in and they knew the myths and everyone i think was part of this um this you know this uh con- perspective or they understood this it was it was actually an honor, and they, they accepted the fact. And people who were sacrificed were actually the ones who would go to the to to heavens. To the heavens was the best place, or the best way to die, you could say, along with women who died from uh, from childbirth. Now, now what you're now what you're studying is when this ritual, a religious ritual that goes back millennia, starts to get political. Now, like, because I guess we should start with that, like the Triple Alliance. Can you, can you explain what that is? Yes. So, so the Aztecs had a, an alliance with another two main uh, cities because obviously there, there's always wars going on in that area. And there were the Xochimilcas and, and, it, and other ones, uh, the Tlaxcaltecas, and they were always trying to fight for territory and resources uh, with the Aztecs. So the Aztecs created this Triple Alliance that's right, towards the end of the late post-classic period, to strengthen strengthen that power that they, they, they had at that point. And, and that's when they really en- enabled more of the, of the taking of humans uh, for sacrifice. And you're right, it's, part of it is political, and, and they were dominating politically and economically. And, and so that's, you know, it, the dynamics are really interesting, but again, in- intricate enough that we understand some of it from the historical record, but we're still mis- missing the pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think my, in, in my research, that's what I'm trying to, to get to, to directly look at the individuals themselves who were sacrificed by looking at their chemical composition and actually understand the lives of those people and try to look back and see how that builds into that complex dynamic of you know the political goings of the Aztecs at that time so obviously for this kind of research forensic archaeology is very important um, yes that I guess the we call it now bioarchaeology but it's also osteology osteological analyses of the, of, the, of human remains and have you started uh, digging into these bones yet or is that a future thing so so the way it worked uh, we uh, I actually got the the materials from the museum. So a, a team of, of people in the 80s and 90s excavated these individuals. And and now it's it, they've identified, like you said, like the part of the osteological processes that happened, how they died and how old were, they were and their sex, if possible. And all of those, those kinds of uh, details that we are useful for us as archeologists. And, and now I'm actually looking at the, the bone itself. So I just have a piece of bone from each individual and a tooth from each individual and, and I'm analyzing the, the analyzing it chem- chemically speaking. 
I'm guessing it's too early to have results yet. Uh, and oh yeah, so right now I'm in the lab, so it's right now full on uh, laboratory work, prepping the samples, analyzing them, and the instruments here at uh, at Western in the lab for a stabilized isotope analysis. And and yeah, it's too early for me to have results, but just stay tuned because <laughs> that's what I'll be working on for the next uh, couple of years, I guess. One, so, yeah. So, so when you say stable isotope analysis, what, what are you talking about and, and what will that tell you about these people? So stable isotope analysis is a technique that um, a lot of archaeologists um, have been using for the past two and a half decades or more actually now. So it's pretty standard now. And the way it works is we, I can explain it in, with, with ourselves, we all eat stuff right so we eat different kinds of foods and they go in through to our bloodstream and from there it actually all the all the chemistry that that of, of what we eat is stays in our bones and our tissues like our teeth and our hair so we could take a a hair from you right now and analyze it through the mass spectrometer and we would be able to tell what you you probably ate in the past years and, and and this is really really amazing because we can actually get directly into the lives of these people so so we we look at um, carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes and and we look at differences in the masses so for example we have c3 and c4 plants in the in our environment and c3 plants have a very particular signature isotopic signature compared to C4 plants. And C4 plants, I look at it because in Mexico, C4 plant is, um, maize was the main source of, you know. And they were really big on corn down Very there. big on yes. corn. It's a staple. So so we can actually look at what kind of foods uh, people were eating based on those different signatures that we're getting from, from carbon mm -hmm. and, and also from, from nitrogen. And would there be like a signature for, because I'm thinking of like the two things that they ate a lot of and it would be like, yeah, corn and agave, or like pulque. Yeah, kind of that kind of they did drink a lot of very alcoholic drinks and fermented drinks, and um, they also drank chocolate. And that was oh, my yeah. in my honors thesis. I talk about <laughs> the, the significance of chocolate, and it's really great to, to to explore that a little bit here. We can't we can't pinpoint specific particular foods per se sometimes, especially because agave is actually one that's like, I guess there, you could call it like a hybrid plant, it's a camp plant, and, and that means that it, it could fluctuate between a C3 and C4 plant and our signature um, would be a little bit messy. So I might not be able to, to tell specifically that they're eating uh, or drinking agave or, or something like that from, or cacti for example is another one, but we would just get we would get an overall picture okay so you are what you eat exactly <laughs> so yeah the expression is you are what you eat plus a few per mil and per mil is just the way we measure uh, the isotope so so we add a little bit more um, because our bones have actually a little bit different signature compared to the actual food but it, it will tell us what we eat and so what are you looking to find so I at this point, I think the main, the main two things are to find uh, what kind of people were sacrificed 
through their dietary composition. So trying to figure out if these people might have been commoners uh, who lived like a commoner and and uh, ate like a commoner, and and then they were sacrificed, and the or or maybe they were not commoners, and you know they were might be in a different social class. Uh, it'll be tricky to, to say, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to explore a little bit of the social uh, milieu of the, of the times through, 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 the, the f- through the food ways. <laughs> and the other piece is trying to figure out where these sacrificed uh, subjects were coming from. Like, were they actually taken as a form of tribute or you know, as a form of payment from other provinces across Mesoamerica uh, through war or through other kind of, you know, uh, other kind of system. And uh, the Aztecs took them and then they would kept, keep them captive for a while and then they would choose them. Okay, this person fits the description, right? And then we'll sacrifice this person or this other person. So, so trying to figure out if they were locals to the region or were they actually foreigners. And, and that would really gives, give us a really interesting insight about what the Aztecs were doing. Like, why mm. would they actually, who were they choosing? And that's like the big question right now. Yes, because like one of the things is like the Aztecs were really, they did have ceremonies different gods, but they were really big on one god. Yes. Right? Uh, yeah, they, they actually, their main temple, the Templo Mayor of Tenochtitlan, uh, embraced two sides uh, or two main gods, and one was uh, Huichilopochtli, the, the god of war, and Tlaloc, the god of water and fertility. <laughs> and, and so that's, I'm, I'm actually working with, with the individuals who were sacrificed to these two gods. And can you uh, sh- say what difference you would find between someone who would be sacrificed f- to Huitzilopochtli versus Tlaloc? Uh, well, one of one of the differences uh, that I'm, we think, or I think as well, you know, with along with other researchers, uh, is that uh, for Huitzilopochtli, the, the it's a child. So we call him like little Huitzilopochtli because he he was a sacrificed. Um, just just one individual in a very intricate way again with a lot of artifacts and in really in a different specific position and everything that tell us this this kid was really important right for for this ritual and he was he seemed to be in good health and comparatively speaking with Tlaloc uh, the the individuals that we found there were also children and, but there were a whole bunch of them. There were 42 uh, individuals, and they were all in a box and on the side of Tlaloc, so on the, on the pyramid side of Tlaloc. And, and they were also associated with artifacts uh, in relation to this god, like water, like stuff from the sea, from the ocean. And, but they seem to have a lot of, um, a lot of disease. And, and what I mean by disease is things that we actually can see on the bone that that look like pathological uh, things, like a pathology is what we would call it. And, and so they might have been sick children. So, so there, there's a little bit of that difference, but I'm not sure I'll be able to actually pinpoint down through their diets, but maybe. Like that's one of the, mm-hmm. the interesting points about differences between uh, sacrificial people. So based on, I guess, the, the previous uh, studies so far or, or records that have been kept and, and found um, what what do you expect uh, the differences to be between the two groups or do you have any ideas on that yet uh, it, uh, yeah I mean 
it's it's hard to to know for sure right now because we I'm open to expect anything honestly because it hasn't been explored yet this this avenue of of research uh, we do have like I mentioned before historical and ethno-historical sources from the Aztecs themselves and from the colonial period for, by the Spaniards who wrote about the Aztecs extensively uh, and they they all mentioned their own their their own conceptions about sacrifice and about people and how how the Aztecs were you know were sacrificing individuals so so we, a lot of but still there's a lot of debate it's very controversial because we're not sure that we will find exactly what the historical sources are saying and and, and most likely we probably won't because you know the Spaniards had a different perspective when they were writing those those very biased and and they actually saw all the goriness and, and how they were evil and this and that and then they brought in Christianity to you know to fix everything that was wrong with them which obviously is you know it's just a biased approach when um, she said everything, she was using quotation marks with her fingers. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and, air quotes. And all but very few pre-contact uh, writings were destroyed. There's only a few codices, I think they're called. Yes, so the codices are those that were written by the Aztec scribes. Um, I mean, there's Maya codices as well. Um, but the Aztec uh, scribes did did create some of them. But again, some of them were destroyed by the Spaniards. They were burnt down and a lot of them were lost. There are some that remain and they're actually very insightful and they provide a lot of information. Like the Florentine Codex, it actually talks about the everyday life of people. And and you get a sense of, of different activities, like the feasting that went on, and the, like when people got um, went through different stages in life. And that one's like the Mendoza Codex talks about when a child starts eating uh, has one tortilla at age, you know, from age three, and then moves to have more tortillas as they they turn six and seven. So it's it's really interesting. But again, a lot of those codices were were supervised by the Spaniards. So again, we're looking at a very particular perspective. First of all, from the scribes who also probably had their own experience, and then from the Spaniards who were actually overseeing this process. Excellent. So one last question before you go. Uh, if someone like me wanted to hound you and find out more about this research as you do it, do you have uh, an online presence that someone can follow to find like all of your latest and greatest work? Uh, I haven't done much lately because I haven't, you know, gotten into my results yet. I do have a Twitter account and I usually post stuff about archaeology and about what I'm doing in the lab. Uh, so it's uh, the Morey. Um, at Dimore, and uh, and I also have an academia page, uh, just Diana Moreiras, and you can probably find me there. And online, there's some online presence. I just haven't had quite the chance to to well, get into it. But yeah, I, I will soon <laughs> once I start getting all the results. <laughs> we'll be very excited to hear about it. All right. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.